WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. There's a lot of thought that goes into making a medical device. Many people think that whenever something is already developed that it doesn't need to continue to be worked on because it's already out there. For example, whenever you see a wheelchair user, you may think that there doesn't need to be many more developments on a wheelchair. However, there are many different things that can occur whenever a user is sitting on a wheelchair for a long amount of time. Since they're not able to get the movement that they need, it may affect their body. To tell us more about this, we're here with Justin Scott, who does research on this topic. Justin, can you elaborate more for me what you study? Hello, my name is Justin Scott. I am a fourth-year PhD student at Michigan State studying engineering mechanics and the interface between wheelchair users and their wheelchairs. For example, one of the things that I study is how when people shift around in the wheelchair, it affects the interface pressure or the amount of force that is going through any area of the body. Now, that's one area of my research that is a direct measurement of that interface pressure, and there will be other areas that I get into. Thanks for joining us this morning, Justin. Could you tell us a little bit about why it matters to study what the pressure is, how the pressure is distributed across a wheelchair, and why that's important for people? What does it matter? The pressure distributions across the different regions of the body while seated, such as in a wheelchair, they matter because those pressures can lead to blood flow occlusion, which means that there is blood that isn't getting to the areas that it needs to in various tissues. When that blood flow isn't getting to the tissues, that tissue isn't getting the nutrients that it needs, and those tissues can start to die, which can lead to a wound such as a pressure ulcer. This is common for people who are also on bed rest. Is your research only focusing on wheelchair users, or is it also expanded to people who are on bed rest? And how common is this? So I think I'm going to start with answering your second question first, because it kind of informs the first answer. So the answer to your second question of how common this is really depends on the care setting that you're talking about. So typically acute care settings where there are people who need much more care will get pressure ulcers at a higher rate. And it's really close to 50% at times, whereas in lower maintenance facilities for people who are wheelchair users, that rate can be as low as 10%. So it can be anywhere between 10 and 50%. And the lifetime risk of developing a pressure ulcer, if you're a wheelchair user, is over 80%. So that's why we focus on wheelchair users is because that lifetime risk is so high because there's a constant maintenance that's needed when you use a wheelchair in order to avoid a pressure ulcer. Now, even though specific for my research, I focus on wheelchair users, the same principles that we apply for our wheelchair users can be expanded to include those who are on bed rest or use other medical devices. It's pretty crazy to me that the prevalence of these ulcers can be anywhere between 10 to 50%. It makes me believe that this has been an issue probably for years now, and people have been trying to understand this issue as well for a while. We talked a lot about wheelchair usage, but are there any other devices that exist right now to help patients deal with these ulcers that they're developing? So yeah, pressure ulcers are a bit of a long story. The earliest literature I've read on pressure ulcers is from the 1950s. And there is like it's suggested that this has been around for longer than that. 
The other medical devices that are of particular interest to us, although we haven't yet studied them, are devices such as prosthetics, like prosthetic legs or arms, because our skin issues or skin wounds for people who use prosthetics are also a pretty big deal. And as you said before, we also are looking at people who are on bed rest. And there have been several kind of strategies for trying to mitigate these pressure ulcers across all devices. However, as I was saying, and as you noted, prevalence between 10 and 50% kind of shows that there still needs to be some work done across all devices. Something you said earlier got me thinking that I would imagine the severity of the disability that person has is going to be correlated to the mobility of the patient. Do you focus on a specific disability within your studies, or are you looking at all the wheelchair users, and do you record what their conditions are? We've focused a lot in our lab on people with spinal cord injuries and people with cerebral palsy. Now, this isn't something that we didn't set out with the goal of just finding these people. However, when you're working with a wheelchair-using group, one of the challenges is that you have to build an amount of trust with the group that you're not out there doing your research just for yourself, but you actually want to help people. So the recruitment of wheelchair users can sometimes be a challenge, especially if you're a person who doesn't have a personal relationship with your participants. To that end, I do a lot of work with the Adaptive Sports Club at Michigan State University, and that has allowed us to reach out to people who have predominantly spinal cord injuries or cerebral palsy, because that's a large group of who they serve, or at least who is part of that club. Now, to the question of whether or not the level of the disability is important in considering the prevalence of the pressure ulcers, it actually does make a difference where if you have someone with a spinal cord injury, and this is the only apples-to-apples comparison that I've seen, is if it was with regards to spinal cord injury. If you have someone who has paraplegia versus tetraplegia, which just means that the spinal cord injury is lower down on the spine, not up near the neck or up in the upper body then the people who have paraplegia are less likely to have a pressure ulcer than those who have quadriplegia, which is the higher level of spinal cord injury. Furthermore, if you have someone with a complete spinal cord injury, they are more likely to have a pressure ulcer than someone who has an incomplete spinal cord injury. So those two factors can really influence the prevalence of a pressure ulcer in the population. A factor that I can imagine influences this is the area of the injury. For example, if it's on the sacrum or if it's in the lumbar area, and then how severe the injury is. But those are many factors to take into consideration. I'm still thinking about the pressure that you had mentioned. I would imagine that there's more pressure on the lower sacral area than somewhere on your leg area because it's where you're sitting directly on. In your studies, did you notice that there are different areas that the pressure may be concentrated towards more than others? Pressure while seated is typically concentrated on bony landmarks around the buttocks, such as the ischial tuberosities of the pelvis, and also the sacrum and the lower back. So there are usually pressure concentrations on those bony landmarks while seated, and those are also between a third and a half of pressure ulcers occur is between those two bony landmarks. Even though there are pressure concentrations around the buttocks while seated, so around the sacrum, around the ischial tuberosities, Those aren't the only factor in how pressure ulcers form. There are factors such as the material properties of the buttocks and of the thighs while seated. And those interactions between that pressure that's on the tissue as well as the material properties of the tissue can help us evaluate internal stresses in the tissue. 
So those internal stresses have been correlated with pressure ulcers repeatedly. So those are also what we're looking at. And that's why the material properties of the buttocks and thighs are also important. There are many factors involved with internal stresses of the body. Like you said, there are different material properties of the tissue. All tissues have different cells and different components of them that can change the stiffness of it. Whenever patients suffer from a spinal cord injury, if they're sitting for a long amount of time, the stiffness of the tissue can change as they're sitting in a wheelchair for an extended amount of time because they're not used to it. How are you measuring the tissue material properties? So for the tissue material properties, we do have our data broken down several ways. The first way is by body position because as we talked about earlier, people can get pressure ulcers while seated or while lying in bed. And as it turns out, when we conducted our material property testing, which was us indenting the participants' buttock and thigh tissue. So you can imagine if you're sitting down that your buttocks and thighs, they kind of squish against whichever surface that you're sitting on. And we are measuring that squish using an indenting tool that collects force and deflection data of the tissue. But when we tested through indentation or through kind of squish, our able-bodied participants, we were able to detect differences in the buttock and thigh tissue properties while seated versus while lying down. So while you're lying down, your tissue properties are actually a lot stiffer than while seated. The second way that we broke down our, our data is through our able-bodied participants and through our participants with disabilities. And one of the things that we really stress in our lab is not making our participants conform to our standards, but actually meeting our participants where they are. For our able-bodied participants and our participants with disabilities, we actually had them both test in the position called the quadruped position, which is basically like being on your hands and knees with your hips and your knees flexed at 90 degrees. So this has the same bone and joint articulations as the seed position, but it's just rotated 90 degrees. When we tested the able-bodied participants and the participants with disabilities in this position, we saw that all three regions had differences, that all three regions that we tested on the participants had differences. So the buttocks and proximal regions of the thighs of the participants with disabilities were much softer than the able-bodied participants. But the distal thigh regions, the region right or proximal to the popliteal fossa, were actually stiffer in the participants with disabilities relative to the able-bodied participants. Another way that people could develop these bed sores or pressure sores is from consistently laying down flat on a bed which is something that a lot of people that develop a physical disability end up having to live like. How does the geometry of these two body parts change the pressure distribution, and what position would lead to a smaller prevalence of these sores? When you talk about body position, first, it's always important to consider that everyone, if they have a disability, it affects them differently than basically the population as a whole. So the position or the ranges of positions that each person can assume or be in isn't necessarily the same as anyone else. Now, when you look at the difference between someone who's seated versus lying down, I'm unaware of a specific difference in the prevalence of pressure ulcers because they can happen anywhere on the body. So someone who's lying down might not have as many pressure ulcers or might not be at as high risk for pressure ulcers in their buttocks or their lower back, but they might be at risk of pressure ulcers in their upper back and their scapula, which is another common place for pressure ulcers to occur. They may also be at, at a higher risk for pressure ulcers in their heel, because when you have your heel laying on the bed for a long time, that can also lead to pressure ulcers in a way that isn't quite as prevalent in wheelchair users. 
So it's a trade-off in the positions when you're sitting, either sitting or when you're laying down. I know that you had mentioned that you're studying pressure in regards to bed sores. However, are you focusing on other things? Because I think of inflammation as well whenever people are sitting down. And whenever inflammation is increasing, temperature might increase as well. Are you also maybe monitoring how the temperature may change across the wheelchair when the patient is sitting on it? Microclimate research around pressure ulcers is an emerging field. So the two key aspects of pressure ulcers, which have also been clinically noted, that are being studied right now are temperature and humidity around the tissue. So an increase in temperature has been correlated with an increased risk of pressure ulcer development. So that would be such as if you were sitting on a chair for a long time, then your buttocks might start to get a little bit warmer just from maybe not even from inflammation, but just from having no cooling heat flow around it due to the constriction of having your tissue right in the chair. But it may also lead, this increase in temperature may also lead to sweating, which can increase the humidity around the tissue that you're looking at. So an increase in in humidity or an increase in moisture around that tissue actually increases the coefficient of friction of the skin to a wide array of other surfaces. So that increase in friction can also lead to an increase in shear force and an increase in pressure ulcer risk. Thanks for explaining that for us, Justin. It's very likely that our listeners could have a physical disability or know someone that has one. I know you're not a medical practitioner, but what advice could you offer to our listeners to help them prevent the onset of these pressure sores? So you are, you are correct. I am not a medical practitioner. And from a clinical perspective, what the clinicians and pra- medical practitioners use to assess pressure ulcer risk is the Braden scale, which has six factors that basically contribute to pressure ulcer risk if they are unaccounted for. And the ones that I can speak to from my, from my personal experience and my research experience are specifically related to the normal pressure or the pressure that we've been talking about on the buttocks and on the lower back. Also, the friction that is on a wheelchair and the moisture that we were just discussing. So an increase in any of these would potentially lead to an increased risk of pressure ulcer. So a good idea is to try and minimize these through whatever means that you have available to you. So if you are seated for long periods of time, repositioning yourself is able to kind of ameliorate some of that normal pressure, some of that shear pressure, and can also help kind of cool off your tissue so you don't sweat quite as much. So repositioning protocol that is common for wheelchair users who have the ability to use their upper arms is to actually do kind of a wheelchair push-up thing where you actually push off of the wheelchair to relieve the pressure off of your buttocks and lower back. If you don't have that available to you, then that becomes a little bit more difficult. If you don't have use of your upper limbs, then typically you have an electric chair that is able to reposition yourself. And what you want to do is actually, it's a good idea to reposition yourself every 20 minutes, every half an hour or so, because some tissue damage can start to occur within about half an hour. If you know someone who uses a wheelchair or has a physical disability, then just kind of checking in on them and making sure they have the resources to reposition themselves when they need to is a really great way to help them out and help them prevent or avoid a pressure ulcer while they use their medical device. Whenever people are sitting in these wheelchairs, I would imagine that the severity of these pressure ulcers can vary, and then that can result in many different downstream effects. Is that true? Is there a way to categorize these pressure ulcers? 
Yeah, so the most common pressure ulcers are grade one or two that are either just skin deep, so there's just a disruption of the skin tissue that leads to a small wound, or potentially one that goes through the thickness of the skin and just starts to get beneath the dermal layer. If you're looking at a grade three or a grade four pressure ulcer, you're starting to look at pressure ulcers that can go all the way through muscle and can potentially expose bone if it's a full if it's a full thickness pressure ulcer. Now, there are two different ways that the pressure ulcer can start. The first way is that way that I was just talking about where it starts with the skin and it works its way down. But there is also potential for pressure ulcers to start at the bone level, at that muscle level, and work their way up to the skin. So the way that the pressure ulcers are graded is by their thickness and which, which layers of tissue they affect. And they can start either from the top at the skin or from the bottom at the bone. I never knew that these pressure ulcers couldn't get to that severity where you're actually reaching a connection between the bone and the tissue itself. Thankfully, there's people like you doing research on this to help prevent these pressure ulcers from happening and occurring. Thank you for joining us today to talk to us about your work, Justin, and good luck. The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Dan Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on SciFiles, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science. <laughs>